This episode is sponsored by FUD. F-U-D stands for fear, uncertainty and doubts. The word is often used in the cryptosphere for bits of information that are either negative, have a dubious source or are simply false. But just like the term fake news, FUD is often used to delegitimize all kinds of information that do not go along with someone's worldview or particular bias. I'm looking at you, maximalists. However, don't you think we should all embrace the uncertainty and doubts, use them as a driver to gain more knowledge, to have a more balanced worldview? The next time you see something and you think, oh, that's just FUD, don't just ignore it. Dig a little bit deeper and maybe you learn a thing or two. FUD, give it a chance. Welcome to Unforkable, the podcast that aims to make crypto more fun, engaging and accessible for everyone. My name is Jonas, I'm the host of this show. Let's hit it! Coins, 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 blockchain. Coins, 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 blockchain. Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Ether, Ether, Ethereum, Tesos. Ah. My baker just sent me some XTZ. What are you picturing in your mind when you hear that phrase? If you imagined a dot-shaped cronut-selling bakery run by a 20-something-year-old raver who also sells party drugs on the side, I wouldn't blame you. But you couldn't be more wrong. X to Z, also called Tezos, is the native cryptocurrency of Tezos, the blockchain. And bakers? Well, in Tezos lingo, a baker is running the nodes on the Tezos blockchain. A bakery is basically the equivalent of a miner in Bitcoin. So in this episode, we hear from someone who runs one of the biggest bakeries on the Tezos blockchain. Are we recording? Yeah, we're recording. Cool. Today I'm talking to Adrian Brink. He's from Germany, but now we're here in Switzerland in Zug, the heart of the Crypto Valley. <laughs> and you're laughing at me, I'm laughing a little bit too, because... Uh, you know, actually... What, what is Crypto Valley actually, yeah? Oh, no, there really are like exist? 12 people here. Really? They're like maybe 20. Right. I guess best there are like 20 competent people here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the 500 to 600 lawyers and accountants. To be fair, this is the Zook model. And Zook has worked long before crypto existed and will survive crypto long after. I have no worries <laughs> about this, really. Um, no, but I actually moved here a couple of years ago. So when everyone in the world was like, yeah, the world is going to shit. Let's move to Crypto Valley. Let's bunker down in Switzerland. I was like, yeah, Switzerland sounds cool. This All is right. like a nice quiet place and I want to get away from big city. So I moved to Zug. But Zug is not only nice and quiet, but also offers a favorable regulatory environment for crypto companies. Therefore, it is no accident that many of them are based in Zug. For instance, the Tezo Foundation, the blockchain we're talking about in this episode, is based there as well. In 2018, Adrian co-founded his company called Cryptium Labs. He and his team of 11 are working, researching and running notes on new kinds of blockchains such as Tezos that need far less electricity than, for instance, Bitcoin. Let's say your notes that you're running, um, how, if, if that would be in the size and the importance of the network on Bitcoin, how would that look like, this, this place where, where this mining operation would be running? How, how, how would that be like in size or um, how would you describe that? How much oh, energy would like that use? A room, right? Like, it's like a single server rack or like a room with a couple of server racks, maybe a room five by five meters. If it would be on Bitcoin. Oh, on Bitcoin. Oh. If, you're, if the one well, you're running would be, be on Bitcoin, oh, what, what would that be? 
So on Tezos, we maybe have 4% of the network voting power right now. If you map this to Bitcoin, that's a lot of ASICs and a lot of power requirements. So like 4% of Denmark, I think, in terms of power requirements, roughly. I checked, and out of the date of this recording, Bitcoin requires roughly the same amount of energy as the country of Pakistan. If Adrian would run his bakery on the Bitcoin network, he would need an industrial-sized setup. Picture multiple data centers filled with specialized and very energy-hungry mining computers, called ASICs. Naturally, I was wondering what the bill of his bakery was on Tezos. It's not actually worth considering. It's like maybe a hundred bucks a year or something. Okay. Wow. And how, how does it look like? Like literally, you just said... Yeah, it's literally like a room five by five in a data okay. center somewhere in Switzerland. In um, the Alps, in Swiss Alps, etc. Yep. But funny anecdote about this. At some point randomly, I got an email from our data center provider saying like, don't worry guys. If in two weeks there will be tanks and soldiers outside checking when you go in, I was like, "Wait, why?" And it turns out that our data center is part of the Swiss critical internet infrastructure. So once a year, the Swiss military practices defending um, the, the data center because we shared with a ton of the Swiss banks. So if the data center goes down, um, much of sort of the which the German-speaking banking system goes down in Switzerland, uh, which is cool. Okay. Um, so now we can confidently say that the Swiss military may not be maintaining our nodes, but in the worst case, it will try and defend them. <laughs> it was a cool experience. W whatever that is worth, though. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Well, hopefully we won't see. But the reason why Adrian can fit his complete server infrastructure into a small room somewhere in the Swiss Alps instead of a factory-sized warehouse has to do with the way how Tezos decides who is allowed to add new blocks to the Tezos blockchain. Proof of stake is about determining who is allowed to participate in the uh, in creating new blocks and assembling mm -hmm. transactions into blocks on a network. Mm -hmm. The people with the most money have the most voting power in the network, the same way that the people with the most ASICs have the most hash rate in Bitcoin. What you need to know is when you are a Bitcoin miner, you get rewarded with newly minted coins when you are allowed to add a block to the chain. Miners are therefore competing with each other by solving very hard mathematical puzzles. The more ASICs you have, the higher is your chance to add the next block and then get paid freshly minted bitcoins. This mechanism is called proof of work. In Tezos, they use a totally different approach called proof of stake. With proof of stake, the players who have more coins have more power. The game theoretical idea behind this concept is that someone who owns a lot of coins has no incentive to do something that could harm the Tezos blockchain and therefore make their coins less valuable. Anyone in the world can run a node and validate the chain, mm -hmm. uh, but you need to have, in Tezos, at least 8,000 XCZ, one role in order to run one of the baking nodes. Mm -hmm. So if you have 8,000 XTC, you can start baking on Tezos. But attention, Tezos works with reward and punishment. The coins you use for staking can be automatically be destroyed if you behave maliciously. The question becomes, how do you incentivize people, proof of stake um, validators, to build a coherent chain instead of building on every single chain they, could po they possibly see on the network? Well, what you do is you say, if you sign a block, if you sign a block height 2, but you sign two conflicting blocks at the same height, then we slash you. Um, in Tezos, this means you slash security deposits and other systems. It's a percentage slash of how much money you have at stake. Um, 
it results in the same thing though. It results in the fact that there's now an economic penalty to signing all possible forks. And this is sort of how proof of stake incentivizes people. So um, what you can do wrong is you sign two blocks at the same height, but different blocks. I mean, the, the software does this basically automatically. So if you don't do anything purposefully wrong, could it happen that they take away your, uh, your coins? Without malicious intent, yeah. most slashing events happen due to uh, carelessness rather than malicious intent. When we started this in sort of end of 2017, a bunch of people started going around saying, well, you need high availability. You need to have like duplicate your signing keys across multiple geographical jurisdictions. If one node goes down, then the other one automatically starts picking up. This is how people got slashed all the time. So people came from this website mentality where like, yeah, I want to be available. And so they build infrastructure that is highly available, but not necessarily reliable. I really care that I never ever sign two blocks at the same height because that is sort of a hundred thousand dollar loss immediately. A bunch of people started setting these up and they got convinced that they should be running uh, redundant infrastructure. So they copied their key, put it on two machines and then wrote a fancy Python script um, to determine whether you were still live, whether the first node was still online and if it wasn't started spawning the second node, then there was a bug in the Python script then both nodes started spawning at the same time and now they got slashed because they double signed at the same height. To this day, it still makes no sense to me why people care about availability. Like I'm super happy to be down for two weeks if it prevents me to being slashed once because being down for two weeks is way cheaper than being slashed even once. How could you compare the price of being down at two weeks? Oh, like being down for a day, maybe a thousand dollars. Um, getting slashed once, maybe $100,000. I can be down for 100 days and I'm still winning. Wow, okay, wow. Uh, like double signing is severely punished for good reasons because it fundamentally yeah. affects the security of these networks. What could go wrong if you do a double signing? So if you don't punish this very severely, if you have a lot of voting power, generally more than one third of the network, uh, you can start tricking light clients into believing um, so like nodes that don't necessarily validate the entire blocks uh, into following the wrong chain. So you can start double spending exchanges, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have more than two thirds, you can just do arbitrary things. Like you can create a hundred different forks and no one will be able to tell what is the real fork mm -hmm. or at least not programmatically tell. Um, and so in proof of work, you don't have this problem. And so due to that, it's severely punishing proof of stake. But Tezos also has some other interesting characteristics and features. For instance, if you can't run your own bakery and participate directly in the network because you don't want to or you don't have 8000 XTZ, you can delegate your coins and also voting power to a bakery of your choice. The baker in turn has even more power in the network and will share the newly minted XTZ coins with the delegator. I also have some Tezos, not many, um, but I, if, 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 if I want to, well, now the de delegation comes into play, I go to guys like you or other nodes and I say, hey, take my coins, vote for me and kind of use my capital, let's Best say. Best part is you don't ha even have to talk to us. And uh, <laughs> because you can just send a transaction on the network. Yeah. And now your one role, your 8,000 XTZ is just pointed at us. Yeah. And um, it's completely permissionless, the system. They, they don't even leave my wallet, no, basically. No, you have it's, full it's like, custody of your yeah, assets. It's like literally no risk to do that. Yeah. I can also earn some 
I wouldn't say I don't know interest on it. Or how would you how would you say that if I delegate? It's not interest. It's this not is interest. Like, yeah. Okay. What is it? Fundamentally, it's inflation. This is the weirdest thing, also from a tax perspective, and I don't think governments have yet understood this. If 100% of XTZ state, no one makes any money. It just we just print 5% more tokens every year, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yet we somehow believe that we made money, even though no, we just diluted everyone equally. And it makes no sense to me that this is like a taxable event that you've received inflation. One of the biggest challenges with decentralized systems is that it is really hard to make changes or upgrades. Let's say when your computer, for instance, will get an OS upgrade, then it's usually a central entity like a corporation that will decide that you need to update the software on your phone or computer and what new features will be implemented in this update. For blockchains and decentralized systems in general, this process is much more complicated. Many blockchains have no formalized way of doing things which can cause a lot of problems. Tezos addresses this issue with a set of formalized rules that work similar to a modern democracy, where everyone who holds ecstasy has a vote. How much has Ethereum evolved since its inception three years ago? Not a lot, really. Nothing has happened in three years, effectively. Really? They've added like I have no idea, two or three opcodes. It's really? minimal. Wow. Um, like, what, do, what are they doing, all these teams? It's an interesting question. I don't know. Uh, um, but like the core protocol in Ethereum, or Bitcoin for that matter, hasn't changed all that much. Um, fundamentally, because they have no way to agree upon whether the community wants something. Then there's always this fuzzy notion, what is the community, what is, who, who are the stakeholders, who has the right to have input, and then it ends up, if you don't have a governance system, it ends up in flame wars, and who's loudest on Twitter, who's loud on Reddit, who can censor whom, in other platforms, it's a mess. Due to that, mostly they haven't evolved. Um, For basically infighting what code should be added to the to the No, because also people have very different opinions, and just because you're very loud on Twitter, Like, being loud on Twitter doesn't imply that you're either technically capable or that you have a lot of stake in the system. It may also imply that you're just unemployed. Like, (laughs) either one. Like, either you have, like, a lot of stake in the system and that's why you care, or you're unemployed. Both are totally valid things and you have no way to tell by who's on Twitter. Or you're the, you know, like, President of the United States. (laughs) Or that, yeah. (laughs) Or Elon Musk. You have a lot of free time. (laughs) Something like that, but... Um, due to that, it's very hard to decide who, who has the right to make upgrades. So who has the right to say we want to change inflation in Ethereum, for example. Mm. Um, Tesla ships to the governance mechanism, which means that if you hold a majority of the coins in the network, you have a much larger say in uh, how the network can evolve in the future. Right? If you hold 20% of the network, uh, you can have a very large impact on the votes. Okay, because it's like a vote. It's like a democracy. It's not a democracy. Uh, with, well, some people have more votes because they have more. Uh, it's the more votes you have, the bigger your bank account, the more votes you have. Okay, so that's like a hyper-capitalistic concept. Uh, Proof-of-stake blockchains right now are hyper-capitalist okay. because we effectively didn't have a good civil protection mechanism. So how do I know that you aren't two people? If I only meet you on the internet, well, I say you can't duplicate money. So if you have two dollars if you want to create a second person you t- now each have one dollar so you say well the two dollars is just your voting power 
But there's not only voting, but also the possibility to auto-update the blockchain. You see, in most blockchains, updates have to be done by each node. That means each person that runs a node on the blockchain has to make sure to always run the latest code. Tezos is called a self-amending blockchain because it can basically update itself. So, so you guys, like last year, um, did the second ever um, self-amended update to the blockchain. So how, how, that, how does that work? Like um, first you have like a, a proposal phase and you have like a voting phase and then you have like a rollout yes. phase or something Magical. like that. Okay, blockchains with, that are auto-upgradable, you can almost imagine like large-scale botnets. Someone injects some code and then if the code gets accepted by whatever means, uh, then all nodes automatically update to the new code on the network, um, which is a really cool feature to have because it means that not everyone has to always manually reinstall. Um, so the way this works in Tetris is um, someone develops a protocol upgrade, inject, propose it. So the one with the most upvote goes through, you can upvote many different proposals. Then you go to the second phase. The second phase is the expiration vote. There people get to vote and uh, quorum right now is roughly like 58%. Sorry, what does that mean quorum? Uh, like uh, you need to have enough people participate in the vote. This is by the way what Brexit should have done. I, mm -hmm. It's not a good idea to like have 30% of your population decide what the other seven and the other 70 just turn out to be too lazy to show up. Uh, once you reach quorum, then you also have to reach an 80% supermajority. So 80% of the people need to vote yes and less than 20% of the people need to vote uh, can vote no. And if that's the case, then the testing phase starts. And the testing phase runs for three weeks, then the promotion phase starts. Um, and the promotion vote is again another vote where you have the same quorum requirements. And if that one succeeds, then the network will automatically uh, upgrade to the new protocol. Mm. Meaning that if you have a protocol that adds new features, you will everyone will automatically get access to the new features. Or at least that's a theory. In practice, sometimes it looks still a little bit different. Oh, yes, it's still a pain, yeah. <laughs> ah, so that's basically how it should be, but it's not really no, no, so No, it, it works in practice, but it's still required. Like, if you're a baker, you still require that you manually do things. Quick update from the cutting room. After the recording of this interview, a brand new protocol update called Carthage has rolled out overnight on Tezos. This time, everything went much smoother and bakers didn't have to do manual labor to update their nodes. I asked Adrian if this way of voting and updating the blockchain can prevent Tezos from forking, which is a fancy way of saying splitting. This can happen when influential groups are fighting over the course of the blockchain. No, I mean, yeah. everyone is still free to fork. Uh, mm. This isn't about locking people in. Like if 20% if of the community fundamentally disagree with a choice, they can always leave and do their own thing. And that, I think it's a good thing. Otherwise you get sort of this very strict vendor lock-in, which you currently have with AWS or Google, where like you can't leave because you don't own the data. This is super mm -hmm. nice about blockchains. So like if you feel strongly about something, you can decide, fuck it, I'm off on my own. And then okay. try to do it on your own. And we, I don't think we should prevent it because mm -hmm. um, like it's very clear to detect how many people are in favor of something. And if a lot of people are in favor, then you go with it. Mm -hmm. um, but if not a lot of people are in favor, if no one is in favor, then you don't go with it. Like the BSV hard fork on Bitcoin could have just been like five people on Twitter running Twitter bots, convincing the world that there's actually a large community that wants BSV. Maybe in reality there was no one. We don't know. I this know. is why governance is important. You know what else is important? That your code doesn't have bugs. Tezos also has a solution for that. Um, 
So a formal verification, how I understood it is like, um, it's about the programming language. So if you do program on a blockchain, um, it's very important that everything works out fine. There's a lot of value tied up in the blockchain. And with formal verification, that's basically like um, a mathematical tool that kind of makes it easier for you as a programmer to see if your code is valid and if it's doing what it's supposed to do. Yes, this is somewhat correct. Um, historically speaking, uh, formal verification has been used relatively little in the realm of software engineering, mostly mm -hmm. because uh, the only times when you really required formal, formal verification was in the airline industry or the space in industry, where if you have one line that's wrong and your rocket blows up, you lose $100 million. That's all of a sudden the economics work that you have, need formal verification. Smart contracts, on the other hand, are very different, but they still have the same constraints, right? 500 lines of code can contain $500 million of value. So all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense to be really, really fucking sure that those 500 lines of code work well. It's important to note though, you can always make mistakes in your proofs. So, like, so this what's is totally the point? possible. What's the point? Um, it just gets harder and harder. Uh, I'm, just because something is formally verified, it may formally verify the wrong invariant or someone had made a typo. Um, like, this isn't like a bulletproof thing. Okay. okay. But it helps a lot. Like, how much would, would you say, like, does it help? Like, out of a scale of 100, like 90. What I enjoyed most about our conversation was that Adrian was speaking very openly with me. Even though he's running a business that requires for this technology to succeed, he was very realistic and critical about the space. For Adrian, it's clear that we're still in the early days and still far away from mass adoption. It's like 1995, the internet is just coming out. We don't really understand what you use this for. We're not even at the AOL Netscape stage. Like... The first applications, like we have no major applications that are actually used by more than like a hundred people a day. Mm. Like when you think about this, like... That's crazy. Practically speaking, this is valued at a lot of money right now, but Ethereum maybe has a thousand active daily users. It's nothing. Yeah, I mean, if, if that's... I, I don't know... Like the, if you compare it to the market cap. Yeah, no, I, I don't know the, this data. What are, you, what are you saying? Where do you get that? This is uh, just like a guesstimation, I guess. It's a guesstimation, but it's okay. like um, no one is using it for active payments. Yeah. Like some hobbyists are using it for payments. Uh, there's some use on DeFi, um, but that's really it. There's like there's nothing like PayPal that processes hundreds of millions of dollars of value mm -hmm. a day. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like MySpace where millions of people are using it. Like I can very confidently say that Ethereum does not have a million uh, daily active users. And it, by the way, it only gets worse from here on out. Like Ethereum is probably the most widely used one right now. Wow. Um, so like we're very much before the first point of adoption, if I'm honest. Crazy. That's crazy. Also, there's a likelihood that this entire space just disappears in the next five years. Like there's an absolute chance that Bitcoin just goes away in the next five to ten years. Really? Yeah. Like this is like... Why? Why would that happen? Uh, if we solve no major use cases, it doesn't matter how cool the centralized system may be. If we don't get more than a thousand daily active users for these platforms, these things aren't inherently valuable. Like they're valuable because we think that in the future they can be used by many people. But if we never get to the stage where they are used by many people, the underlying assets are also not valuable. Mm -hmm. um, so like if in 10 years, Bitcoin still only has maybe a thousand users, it's not going to be this valuable. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Which brings us to the last part and a subject that a lot of people are grappling with. What is a cryptocurrency? What are those coins really used for? And why are they valuable? These questions go to the very core of what Tezos and frankly all cryptocurrencies really are. At some point, you need to have people working on figuring out what can you actually do with this thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a very good question. What, what can you do with this? What is it actually? Oh. I mean, let's go back to the comparison of Bitcoin. It's just a given. Bitcoin was the first, so people know the narrative of Bitcoin. Digital gold, basically, store of value. And there, there are conflicts, there are different narratives, but let, let's go with the one is like digital gold. What would Tezos be compared to that? I have a hard time believing that. So people believe that Bitcoin is digital gold. Um, however, it's important to understand that if sort of five Chinese people tomorrow decide to print more Bitcoin, they can. Like with the five mining pools in China, go like, yeah, let's just change the underlying protocol to maybe remove the hard cap. They could. Um, depending on what, what the market goes with, um, this may now be the canonical Bitcoin. Because technically, the canonical Bitcoin is where the majority of hash rate is spent on. Um, due to that, it's like gold has a finite supply because there's like only so much gold. This sort of goes away once we reach space. But like all these assets are fundamentally socially construct, social constructs. Um, sorry, that was no, somewhat a digression. It. No, it's, it's interesting, um, yeah. Uh, so like Bitcoin is only a store of value because everyone believes that the five mining pools in China won't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully they're right. Maybe it'd be cool. Um, what these things will be useful for, I don't know. I can see that we form um, someone of digital commonwealth where we have like digital nation states almost. Um, mm-hmm. Because one way you can look at this is, especially the networks with governance, um, you can look at them like nation states and go, well, they have a way to vote. So they have some sort of democratic participatory process, a way in which they can make choices about their future. They have access to large amounts of capital because they can print the underlying money, just like the U.S. Treasury prints money or the euro prints money. Mm-hmm. Right? The Swiss franc does the same thing. These aren't backed in the real world. This is just magic money. All money is effectively magic. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can look at them like nation states, digital nation states. Maybe that's one use case. Maybe in the future people will decide to join the Tezos, Tezos nation. Uh, maybe there's a Cosmos nation. Maybe there's a Bitcoin nation. Who knows? That's like <laughs> one possible future, I think. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, Do you have other ones? Because I think like, let's say people don't know Tezos. And so, the, all right, I, I can give you sort of a practical thing so, that everyone talks about. But or, or let me ask differently. Like, in Ethereum, one of the the debates is is Ether money? Yes or no? There are like people who say yes, it is money, and it, and other ones who say no, it's not money. And money being meaning, should it be more like a, a utility? Like exchange, use for exchange. Yeah, unit for, of account. Exactly. Is it is it that or not? And I think, from my understanding, Tezos was kind of coming more from a Bitcoin-ish point of view. And for them, it's very clear that Tezos is valuable because it is kind of similar to money. Uh, I agree. So uh, the only thing any of these tokens are valuable if, is if they are money. Um, if Ethereum wasn't money and was just used to pay gas, Ethereum should be valued at like $1.50. Um, the only reason why Ethereum is valuable is 
It's because people assume it could be future money, mm-hmm. um, which is possibly also true for Tezos. Actually, I think everyone keeps talking about all these fancy use cases. Yeah, we'll be a digit like we'll digitize assets on the blockchain. We'll have utility tokens that represent shares in underlying companies. Um, all these kind of kinds of things. Uh, Somewhat strange to me because we haven't solved the most basic use case right now, which is private digital cash. No one, has, no one wants to do this because it's regulatory-wise uh, a touchy topic. But practically speaking, by now we have the technological means to do this. We have decentralized systems that can act as an underlying ledger to track transactions. We have enough cryptography to construct fully private payment methods on mobile phones. So really, I think the f- very first use case that all of these platforms should strive to solve is a PayPal slash WeChat-like experience of being able to send someone across the world or next to them the equivalent of like a five euro bill. And it's equivalent, it doesn't matter whether I give you the thing, like I give you a physical five euro bill or I send you five euros digitally using digital private cash. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing um, in terms of properties. I think... For me, this is by far the most interesting use case. Um, but everyone is free to experiment. People can build security tokens and tokenize real-world assets and do shady ICOs on Ethereum. But why, why would you think like a normal person, a regular person who has nothing to hide, so to speak, like, is not like a mafioso or somebody who is uh, selling drugs or, or guns, would prefer that? Um, over, let's say, just sending something through PayPal. Right. Um, it's a very bad idea, from a nation-state perspective even, to leak its financial data to the outside world. And this is really what we, where we're currently heading. And I, for example, I don't understand why Sweden does this, where Sweden wants to phase out cash and instead just wants to use Visa. It's just saying that, yeah, we have nothing to hide from the U.S. government, but you have no idea the state that something that the U.S. government could be in in five, 10, 50, 100 years from now. But at that point, you've already leaked all your data and now your financial infrastructure is completely transparent to the rest of the world. I don't think this is a world that anyone wants to live in. Hmm. I'm, not, I'm not convinced because uh, people share all their data. They don't care. All the, let's, let's take it away from money. Like even their, they put their private photos up on Instagram. Oh, and it will um, come back to hunt us, by the way. To be fair though, if you speak to German people, It's not that they have nothing to hide. It's they just have in very recent memory how the Stasi operated in East Germany and no one liked that. Mm. Um, so even if you have nothing to hide, it's probably not a good idea to share all your financial or personal data with mm. everyone that asks for it. But there's also the flip side. I mean, there, there, there are many um, economists who, who say, hey, we have to kind of get rid of cash. Because actually it is a big um, driver and facilitator to crime. Oh, I mean, sure, people will say this, but practically speaking, HSBC laundered a billion dollars for the Mexican drug cartels. Like, the real problem is the existing banking system facilitating crime, not that cash is crime facilitates crime. I mean, I'm pro-crypto, that's why I do this podcast, obviously. <laughs> However, I also see, like, the... the, the you know, like the real possibility of abusing those systems and it will happen and that's actually usually the first use case. I think who is interested in jumping on something that is more bothersome to use? 
um, than whatever you use normally. Uh, usually the people who have literally something to hide are, are the first ones. I wouldn't necessarily say so. I can actually see um, Germans, for example, due to the fairly recent experience with the Stasi. Well, being Germans are shady guys, you have to agree on that. Coming from the Swiss guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, um, okay. But I think <laughs> this is the problem. If the user experience is atrocious, which it is right now, yes, if I want to buy cocaine on the dark, dark web, then I may be willing to take the UX trade-offs, but if I want to buy bread, then I'm not willing to take the UX trade-offs. But if there are no UX trade-offs, I would surely use digital private cash to buy my bread in the local supermarket. Because I think it's a better alternative to using a Visa card. But, but when you say digital private cash, one of the things is stability. And um, there we could go into, are you talking about now about um, a, a stable coin based on, let's say, Tezos? Or are you talking about literally like the Tezos coin itself? It's hard to say. I think we need to experiment with this because I don't know. So I think we should have, we should try and see if we can make these underlying tokens, the staking tokens, money and use them in commerce. I think we'll have a very hard time getting adoption for this though. Like I have a very hard time believing that like the local supermarket in Zook wants to accept XCZ as a means of exchange and hold this for a long time because their cost base lies in Swiss francs, right? So like mm. they would maybe take it and immediately convert it um, until a large part of an economy is denominated in some currency, it's sort of inconvenient to use it. Maybe the alternative to this is then we build stable coins on top, maybe something like Maker or Arthur talked about something like Checker. So algorithmic stable coins built on top of it um, so that we use the underlying asset and create a stable coin on top that is relatively stable with reference to some real world currency that major economies are denominated in. Or maybe the third alternative, which I think Switzerland is a prime position to do, is the Swiss Central Bank starts issuing digital Swiss francs, where they say, look, these are completely fungible with a physical paper bill, whether you send me one with cryptographically signed, or you hand me a five Swiss franc bill, same thing, and they start printing them, maybe on a proof of authority chain, and then they use some other systems. Um, because then you have the guarantees of the Swiss franc, and we can just use them here in local payments, and no one has to be worried that, like it's the same thing as if you accepted five Swiss francs, um, but all of a sudden you don't have to deal with all the sort of complexity of managing cash. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we, we digress a little bit, but I, I enjoyed it. I think it's interesting and an important um, conversation. Well, thank you very much, Adrian. Um, if people would like to reach out uh, to you or more, know more about Cryptium Lab, where should they go to? Uh, cryptium.ch or find me on Twitter at Adrian underscore Brink. If someone wants to give me a birthday present, Adrian Brink is available without the underscore and I've not yet managed to convince Twitter to give me that handle. How come? You... Some other guy with five followers are registered it like five years ago and this account has now been deleted, but I still have not been able to get my Twitter handle without the underscore. Jack Dorsey, if you're listening to this, please give Adrian Brink his Twitter handle back. And for everybody else, visit unforkable.cc and sign up for the mailing list. I would really appreciate it.